Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, my own website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gittler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 25 in our series for 2022, and today's date is Friday, July the 22nd. Today, I'll be talking to Grant Case, the Regional Vice President for APAC of Data IQ, the centralised data platform that moves businesses along their data journey from analytics at scale to enterprise AI. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest jobs. But now, let's talk to Grant Case. Well, Grant, tell us about DataIQ. Oh, thanks, Leon. So DataIQ was founded almost 10 years ago by four French individuals coming in and realizing that, quite frankly, AI was starting to change the world in much the same way it was beginning to change all of how we interact uh, as consumers, whether through websites or phones and applications. That was going to change the rest of business and organizations themselves. So what they did is they decided, how do we work together to start figuring out how organizations will begin to change as well. And that really came about this concept of everyday AI. And everyday AI is in much the same way AI has become very pervasive and ubiquitous for customer or for consumers. The same was going to happen for businesses. But in order to do that, businesses were going to have to begin to collaborate much more closely. Data scientists, data analysts, ML engineers, executives were going to have to start to come together to build out these data and AI products themselves. And that's really the genesis of what Data IQ as an organization and our mission has been for almost 10 years now, as we have begun to grow coming from Paris and now more a worldwide organization in of itself. You employ something like a thousand people. Yeah, absolutely. So we've just passed about 1,100 people uh, working for the organization. I joined quite early on. That was about four years ago. We were about 127 at that time. But ultimately, what we have seen throughout the entirety of our existence has been this growth in the desire for AI uh, inside of organizations. So that has started this tremendous growth. That's why we're now in Singapore, in Japan, Korea, here in Australia, Melbourne, Sydney, and Adelaide. When we talk about the Middle East, everywhere uh, we see around the world, there is a fantastic growth and opportunity for the use of AI in organizations, and those organizations are hungry. Well, what sort of services does Data IQ offer companies in terms of AI? It's a very good question, and part of what we do is this concept of everyday AI is we provide a platform for the 
creation of those AI and data products within an organization itself. So one of the things our founders came together when we were starting to discuss and build out our platform was really when we're talking about a customer or a consumer, they're thinking more of, you know, specific tools. So it's a specific application, but they really don't have to talk to each other. My refrigerator doesn't really have to talk to perhaps something, uh, my stereo, right? But when we're talking about an organization, finance has to be able to talk to uh, marketing and it has to be able to talk to sales. So what we have done is we've built a platform so that people can start to create data products and AI capabilities such as machine learning models and start to share those across the organization itself. So an analyst who has perhaps no concept of coding but has a little bit of statistics background and knowledge can start to build out their own sort of pipelines of data and start to create their own insights. The flip side of that being data scientists can start coming together and helping those individuals build out those machine learning models that may be even more complex later on. Ultimately, what we're trying to do is ensure with whoever's working within your organization, no matter what their maturity is around analytics and AI, we've think they have value as a part of that chain of command and we want to be a part of it. So does that mean, for example, that, uh, well, let's, let's just get pragmatic here, that someone mm -hmm. in sales can mm -hmm. actually work with someone in marketing, mm -hmm. even though they have different skills and different data sets, but they can share their data sets mm -hmm. uh, using the data IQ platform. Is that right? Absolutely. And I think that's actually one of the key foundational components of Data IQ. And when we talk to different customers is that collaborative capability. So let's just take your example for a moment. If I'm working within as a sales manager, I need to be able to understand what my marketing campaigns are. If I'm the marketing manager, I need to understand what sort of attribution model I might be trying to understand that are bringing my sales leads. In. So we as a platform help both of these individuals to share those data sets that are accessible to them, make their own comments and commentary, build their own insights so that ultimately we believe everybody has to be on the field in order to make these new data products, this new AI come to life within an organization. The, the concept and idea of the old here is a programmer or here is a data scientist and they're going to work alone and put the pizza underneath the underneath the door and they'll put out a model maybe at some point in time. That's just not going to happen. There's too much going on and there's too much complexity in the world to go it alone. So therefore, let's bring everybody as into this uh, set of problems so that we can come to solutions. One of the issues though with many organizations is you have, uh, there are many organizations which are basically comprised silos mm -hmm. and uh, well, that would be a challenge for Data IQ. Oh, I would, absolutely. So uh, back in 2019, New Vantage came out with a, a survey that basically said 5% of the failures of AI projects were due to the technology itself, but 95% were due to the processes and people associated with that. And to be fair, I haven't seen anything different in the, you know, the decade plus of working in and around this space before that, or the three years since it's people process and technology that we always come back to, to create transformation and people and processes are always the biggest component of that. So when we're talking about integrating new AI capabilities into an organization or just even introducing them into an organization, it's being cognizant of those people and processes. So when we talk to clients, 
this is a sea change. I, I loved uh, some of your former guests, uh, John Fong and uh, Dr. Wallace, talking about AI is a huge disruptor right now. Uh, Dr. Wallace, I believe, was saying there was about 85 million jobs that were going to be displaced while we create 92 million new ones. That's what's happening. But in order to make sure that AI becomes uh, ubiquitous and prevalent within an organization so that they can leap forward, you have to get everybody engaged. And that's part of what this process, when we take a customer through this journey, uh, this AI journey through its five steps. So explore, experiment, et cetera. That's really, we have to help those folks make that path through that. Because if we don't, you know, basically you will end up failing. Well, one of the issues there too, surely, is that you would have to equip people in the organization with the various skills to interpret the AI. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, that's part of the job creation, isn't it, of uh, AI? Absolutely, absolutely. And that's one of the funny things about all of this, as we start to think about just in general, as people kind of go on this journey with AI and part of the upskilling process of as we talk to customers is basically bringing these people along. So we have a, another partner we work with quite closely and they've gone out and done their own internal studies. And there's only a few hundred to maybe a low few thousand data scientists and ML engineers within the Australian market right now. We have 28, 25, 27 million people within this country. Guess what? There's not going to be enough people to do this sort of work. And if it's supposed to transform all of business, we've got to find a better way to do that. So part of that is the upskilling process. So we spend a lot of time with customers, helping them understand not just AI technology in general, but how do you start to upskill those individuals within your organization that don't know necessarily anything about AI. I would say some of the best organizations and the most forward-thinking ones that I've worked with here in the, uh, the ANZ market are coming to the concept that, yes, we need to hire some of these data scientists or machine learning engineers to do the work, but might be only have five or 10, or maybe in the case of somebody like a Canva, maybe have a, a couple of dozen, but if you have a few thousand people, we need to be able to bring those people to bear to these problems. And that's where that upskilling comes into place. But to your point, it's also being making sure they understand the responsible aspects of it. So for us at Data IQ, we kind of think of this as a three-legged stool of ML ops, ensuring the operationalization of what you're putting into production, AI governance, ensuring what you're that process that you went through was truly the process that you were expecting and then responsible AI, ensuring that what you've created is coming to the values of your organization itself. You don't have those three. If you're not introducing those three at the same time, you're kind of introducing just AI in general, you, you have the chance to end up on the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald. And I don't think anybody wants to do that. But the issue too is that uh, you've got to actually, that, that will actually change your workforce. Uh, but it's going to change your workforce regardless. I like the, the concept and idea that this has been going on for about a decade now inside of the industry. It's very under the covers. So if we just even think about real estate in general, the change in the number of people that have to touch a document. Uh, now I have underwriting that's happening uh, without any sort of interaction with the individual themselves. That's basically displacing people. So we don't see, but we never see that. It's not as if we're seeing a, a factory shut down and 
there's 2000 people on the street. It's slowly happening in this behind the scenes, but we have to understand that that's going to happen. How can we best prepare those folks going forward? For us at Data IQ, we think a lot about this just in general about how AI might change. And that's also why all of our learning is we've made that freely available online because ultimately we believe there's there's a sea change that will be happening and is happening in the world today. People should be able to upskill themselves and make them that much better to get ready for it. And uh, the companies you'd be advising, I guess it would be financial services, retailers, manufacturers, would that be right? So one of the fun things about our organization is we, we sell a gen, more of a generalized platform because again, we believe everybody in the organization should be working with each other. So I speak to organizations, manufacturing, financial services, retail, pharmaceuticals, healthcare, you name it, any industry, media and entertainment. I've been a part of it. And I think that's one of the benefits, what we talk about AI, there is literally no, no industry that you're not impacting. Construction, real estate, internet commerce, there's nothing where AI is not touching us. The key right now is we're still behind a little bit on the business to business side or the business side of this. And one of the keys for me as an individual, obviously I'm from Queensland with this accent. No, <laughs> originally from the United States, but we have a very unique set of characteristics here in Australia. The first one being we're more cloud centric than just about anywhere else in the world outside of the West coast of the United States. If you walk into any company today, they're making use of the cloud. Guess what? That gives them a, a quick line into getting AI within their organization. The second, we're probably behind in our use of AI within our organization by about three to four years. If we look at that, still look at the U.S. West Coast. So while we're very immature in AI, we're also very mature in cloud, but that gives our businesses the capability to leap forward. We can basically jump forward four or five years where it, in this AI, if we get started right now. Indeed, and Australians have shown they're great adapters. And uh, I'm, I'm a great believer in AI. And look, Grant, it's been fantastic talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much, Leona. Very much appreciated. And now let's talk to Indeed economist Callum Pickering. Callum, the unemployment rate has dropped to a 50-year low of 3.5%. What's your assessment of it? Well, it was an incredible result. Um, employment figures were, were very strong in the month of June. 88,000 people joined the workforce. That drove the unemployment rate down to 3.5%, which, as you said, was the lowest in around uh, 50 years. So we're sort of, certainly in uh, relatively uncharted territory, certainly within my lifetime. Um, and it seems at least based on some forward-looking indicators such as job vacancies, that there is scope for the labour market to tighten a little bit more over the next few months. Certainly the improvement in labour market has probably taken policymakers a little bit by surprise. The Reserve Bank thought we might be at 3.8% by mid-year, so we're well below that. So it does indicate that the Australian labour market at the very least remains very strong despite some of the growing concerns we have around uh, high inflation and rising interest rates. The labour market has actually withstood all of that, despite inflation. Well, it's proving to be very resilient. You know, increasingly I see concerns around uh, Australia experiencing a significant downturn, maybe even a recession, but the labour market is telling a very different story. Uh, we have a historically strong labour market, and we've seen an improvement in the labour market that has exceeded all expectations for the best part of 
two years now. And uh, as I said, it does appear as though it's likely to tighten a little bit further over the next few months. There are a lot of jobs available. Vacancies are at almost half a million, and the unemployment rate is, is obviously very low. So I think that there is scope for us to get into that low 3% range for the unemployment rate. Now, conditions might begin to shift over the second half of the year. We do expect uh, the cash rate to increase quite significantly over that period, and maybe that'll be the straw that breaks the, the camel's back and, and businesses will sort of pull back on their hiring intentions. But at least right now, at this point in time, um, the labour market is doing exceedingly well. Well, that, it's good that you raise that because the RBA will actually be raising interest rates quite acutely and these, these job figures would go to that, wouldn't it? Well, absolutely. So before yesterday's labour market report, the market was pricing in a cash rate of around 3% by year's end. After the labour market data came out, they revised those expectations up. So now they actually expect the cash rate to get to about 3.3% by the end of the year. So the market is very bullish about the RBA. They think that the RBA is going to hike at basically every meeting between now and the end of the year with 50, maybe even 75 basis point increases at some of those meetings. There is increasing speculation that there could be a 75 basis point rise in the cash rate at the, the August meeting. So that gives you a, a sense of sort of what the RBA might be thinking about right now. They need the cash rate to increase quite sharply and they need to do it pretty quickly. Well, certainly the inflation figures from the US are a bit of a worry and the Fed will be raising rates quite acutely. I mean, some, some people are talking about 100 basis points over in the US. So that would put pressure on the RBA here. Well, it would. The RBA would be looking at what's coming out of the US in terms of their inflation figures to get a sense for what might happen domestically. The US has a monthly CPI read. Australia only has a quarterly read. So sometimes we're operating a little bit blind in terms of what's happened in, in recent months with regards to inflation. So the fact that US inflation has exceeded 9% would definitely be a concern domestically. The Reserve Bank would also be wary that one of the, the major um, transmission mechanisms through which monetary policy works is via the Australian dollar. In an ideal world, the RBA wants the Australian dollar to appreciate, to get stronger against the US dollar and our major trading partners, and that would help to contain inflation within Australia. Now, if the Federal Reserve is hiking rates quite strongly, as they have been doing, as they are expected to do, then that actually puts downward pressure on the Australian dollar. The Australian dollar has actually depreciated since the RBA began to hike rates, which actually makes the inflation problem worse. So the RBA is going to be wary of that as well. And they know that if the Federal Reserve is particularly aggressive on rates, then maybe they're going to have to match that. Now, the other issue, too, is vacancies. I mean, they're at record levels, but Australian businesses are desperate to find new workers, and there's a growing challenge to find suitable candidates for those roles. Is that going to become more severe? Well, absolutely. These are the dynamics at the moment. So right now we have almost half a million job vacancies across the nation, and we have less than half a million unemployed people across the country. So that's a, a ratio of about one to one. Now, compare that to what was normal before the pandemic. Back then, the number of unemployed people in Australia was around three times higher than the number of vacancies. So the dynamics have shifted quite significantly. And as the unemployment rate gets down to these record levels, down to 3.5%, it becomes more difficult to get lower than that. And the reason for that is because it becomes more difficult to find suitable candidates for the roles you're looking to fill. 
So what is going to happen over the next three, six months is that more of these job vacancies are going to go unfilled and they're going to go unfilled for longer than they have in the past. So recruitment is just going to be much more difficult in this very tight labour market than it was six months ago or 12 months ago or before the pandemic began. Now, the participation rate is up too, isn't it? Uh, it's 66.8%. Uh, How much of that is from women? Yeah, so the participation rate is up almost a full percentage point since the pandemic began, and that's primarily being driven by greater participation among women, with men contributing to a, a lesser degree. Now, the increase in participation among women is obviously a long-term trend. We've seen it over multiple decades as sort of women enter the workforce in larger numbers, and that sort of closed the gap in participation between women and men. That is a trend that has continued throughout the, the pandemic recovery and could to some extent reflect the fact that there's been very strong demand for workers in what has traditionally been female-dominated industries. So I'm talking about industries such as healthcare, social assistance, retail, hospitality, areas where women are, are typically overrepresented. So there are a lot of opportunities in those areas. And that's the sort of thing that has probably encouraged more women to, to enter the workforce, particularly those that maybe were on the fence. They see that there's a lot of opportunities out there. They see that um, businesses are maybe paying. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Higher wages. And so those jobs are now more appealing for women. And as a result of that, we are seeing participation amongst women uh, increase quite significantly. Now, what will these jobs figures do for wages? Well, that's a, that's a great question. You know, overall wage growth remains relatively weak, about 2.3% nationally. That's much lower than you would normally expect if the unemployment rate was 3.5%. Now, there's a couple of things to bear in mind. One is that wage growth typically lags other measures of the labour market. So the overall tightness in the labour market probably hasn't fed through to wage growth just yet. Another thing to bear in mind, though, is that with inflation so high right now, I think demand for higher wages is going to become louder and more widespread across the community. When you factor in inflation, wages have actually declined at their, their fastest pace in about two decades and workers aren't going to be happy with that. And so we're going to see higher wage demands over the next 6 to 12 months while inflation does remain quite high, which does mean that domestic wage growth would be expected to increase quite significantly over that, that period of time. Now, the other point was, uh, a weak point, was the hours work and underemployment. What did you see of that? Yeah, so a couple of small weak points in what was overall a very positive labour force survey. So... 
Hours worked were unchanged in, in June, which is perhaps a little bit of a surprise given that employment increased by 88,000 people. And also the fact that the underemployment rate increased to 6.1. Last month, it was 5.7%. Now, with regards to underemployment, that, that 6.1% is still the second best result we've seen in uh, around 14 years. So while it isn't quite as good as last month, it's still a very good result by historical standards. So I'm not too concerned about that one. With regards to hours worked, though, there's a few interesting dynamics at play here. The, the big one is that COVID-19 continues to be very disruptive from a business standpoint, and that is impacting hours. So just to put that into some context, in the month of June, 5.7% of the Australian workforce worked reduced hours due to either illness or sick leave. Now, in June, that would be around 3.5% of the workforce, uh, which means that there are about 300,000 more people in the month of June taking some form of sick leave or, or leave because they're, they're ill. Now, that's almost entirely due to, to COVID-19, um, and that's probably weighing on hours to, to some degree. Now, this is a trend that's probably going to persist with us for some time. Case numbers remain very high. They're actually expected to increase over the next couple of months as we go through uh, winter. So we are going to see maybe some downward pressure put on hours worked, despite what is happening with overall employment. You know, we're not seeing COVID-19 in any way, shape or form through the employment figures or the unemployment figures, but we do continue to see an impact through hours worked. Right, and that's not only because of COVID-19, but also because of flu stuff like that? Yeah, the flu would be a, uh, a lesser factor. I mean, the flu is typically with us year in, year out. So it's factored into the fact that 3.5% in a normal year would take some form of sick leave or, or just leave because they're, they're ill. Um, the fact that it's so much higher than that, you know, the, the, the main reason for that discrepancy between 2022 and previous years is because of COVID, I think. Although it is acknowledged that the uh, influenza season this year has been a little bit worse than uh, in previous years. Well, Callum, that's all quite fascinating, and thank you very much for your time. And thank you, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, the International Monetary Fund will cut its global economic growth outlook substantially in its next update, as finance chiefs grapple with a shrinking list of options to address the worsening risks. Surging food and energy prices, slowing capital flows to emerging markets, the ongoing pandemic and a slowdown in China make it much more challenging for policymakers, Sailor Pasabazioglu, the IMF's Director for Strategy, Policy and Review, said at a Sunday panel in Bali, Indonesia. She spoke after the group of 20 finance ministers and central bank governors ended their meeting on Saturday without reaching a communique, underlining the difficulty in coordinating a global response to surging inflation and recessionary fears. The IMF already downgraded its outlook for the global expansion this year to 3.6% from 4.4% before the war in Ukraine in its April report. In a review due this month, we will downgrade our forecast substantially, Ms Pasabozioglu said. IMF Managing Director Kristalina Georgieva told the summit the war is causing significant economic distress in the rest of the world, reducing global growth both this year and next. Now, Australian consumer confidence has notched its first weekly improvement since June, gaining 0.2% last week, according to ANZ Roy Morgan. Weekly inflation expectations softened 0.2 percentage points to 5.8%, its lower since mid-June. Economic conditions next year strengthened 4%. Economic conditions in the next five years recovered 3.3%. Current financial conditions fell 2%, marking 10 straight weeks of declines. And Treasurer Jim Chalmers has warned Australians to brace for bigger real wage cuts than previously flagged ahead of an economic statement to the Parliament next week. 
Inflation forecasts would be revised up and economic growth would be revised down, Dr Chalmers said, and the gap between the rising costs of living and people's take-home pays would widen. With the government under pressure to offset new spending in the budget, Dr Chalmers said there would be fresh savings to the October budget, but he played down the prospect of the new cost-of-living measures. The government will face pressure when the $3 billion six-month halving of the local fuel excise ends on September 30th, especially with inflation expected to peak around the same time. But Dr Chalmers said he expected it would be too expensive to continue. Real wages fell 2.1% in 2020-21, according to Bureau of Statistics data, and will fall by more than 1% this financial year, though the recent 48-year low jobless rate add upward pressure on growth. In addition to updating core economic assumptions, with inflation likely to peak around 7%, the government will update the budget outlook. Westpac on Monday tipped annual headline CPI to hit 6.1% in the June quarter and peak at 7.2% towards the end of the year. And the Reserve Bank's culture, appointments to its board and its 2-3% inflation target will be the focus of the institution's first independent review in four decades. Canadian central banker Carolyn Wilkins, Australian National University economics professor Renee Fry-McGibbon and former senior treasury official Gordon de Brouwer will jointly conduct the first independent review of the bank since its arrangements were instituted in the early 1990s. The trio will deliver their report with recommendations for the federal government by March 2023. The last time the RBA's core operation was examined was as part of the Campbell Review that delivered its report to the Fraser government in 1981. Treasurer Jim Chalmers has formally announced that Review of the Bank will also canvass its performance in meeting its targets, the interaction between fiscal and monetary policy, and the RBA's accountability measures. Chalmers released the terms of reference for a wide-ranging review of the central bank, including its primary task of keeping inflation between 2 and 3%. Dr Chalmers said the RBA had served Australia well, but the review was about ensuring we have the world's best and most effective central bank into the future. The review follows a difficult period for the RBA, which lowered the cash rate to a record low of 0.1% during the earliest stage of the COVID-19 pandemic, but has recently had to chase surging inflation with rapid hikes. The review will look at the appropriateness of the inflation targeting framework and how the RBA's moves interact with government spending. The broad terms of reference released by Dr Chalmers reveal the review will be charged with ensuring the monetary policy arrangements and the operations of the bank continue to support strong economic outcomes. In case of future economic crises, if interest rates are low and the RBA has limited ammunition to stimulate, the inquiry will also examine the interaction of monetary policy with the government's fiscal policy and bank lending rules set by the prudential regulator. The review will also also consider the RBA's conduct during crises and when monetary policy space is limited, which opens the door for, to an examination of quantitative easing. Dr Chalmers said the RBA's performance in meeting its objectives would also be scrutinised, a sensitive issue given the central bank's recent forecasts on inflation and of its own cash rate moves have missed the mark. Who sits on the RBA board and how they come to decisions on the cash rate will also be examined, with an eye to potentially making the process more transparent. The board's structure, experiences and expertise a competition and an appointments process will be part of the review's remit. Appointments to the RBA are often drawn from the business community, which differs from the approach of countries such as the United States, where the board of the Federal Reserve is comprised of economists. Examination of the board's governance and accountability will include a deep dive into the RBA board, which sets interest rates each month. The board's structure, experiences and expertise of members, composition and the appointments process will be considered. Some critics believe the board should have more professional economists to challenge the governor and deputy governor on technical monetary policy issues, while unions want worker representation on the board to be restored. 
and employers in Victoria and Tasmania were hit the hardest by last month's surge in COVID-19 and flu cases, as leave rates soared more than 50% higher than the long-term average. In June, Tasmanian workers took 55% more personal sick or carers leave than the seasonally adjusted average, while workers in Victoria took 54% more time off. However, the winter wave of illnesses has hit the ACT hardest since then, with absences up 48% at the end of June and start of July, analysis of payroll data from MYOB reveals. As the highly contagious BA4 and BA5 variants drive a new wave of infections and hospitalisation, employers are being warned to brace for even higher absences this month. The MYOB data, which represents more than 1 million Australian small business employees, reveals sick personal or carers leave in June was 37% higher than the three-year average compared to a 109% increase in January at the peak of the Omicron wave. Tasmania had the highest increase in personal sick or carers leave last month, followed by Victoria and South Australia. MYOB's analytics team analysed anonymised data from its SME customers to track the number of employees who assigned personal sick or carers leave since February 2019. Data for the last week of June and first week of July reveals absenteeism rates are already tracking 24% higher than the long-term average average. Helen Lee, MYOB's Chief Employee Experience Officer, said the rise in worker absences were likely due to the combination of the ongoing impact of COVID-19 on top of what has been described as a major flu season. The ongoing absenteeism was further straining small businesses, many of which were already facing staff shortages after two and a half years of the pandemic, she said. And the majority of Aboriginal souvenirs on the market are fake, according to a new report by the Productivity Commission. Two out of every three souvenirs sold had no connection to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the draft report found. Around $250 million in Indigenous arts was sold in 2019-20, but the average income for an Indigenous artist who sold work through an Aboriginal arts centre was just $2,700 a year. Inauthentic products can mislead consumers, deprive Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists of income and disrespect cultures, the Productivity Commission Yop Romley-Mokak, a Yawuru man, said. The report called for labelling of inauthentic art, strengthen Indigenous cultural intellectual property laws and extra funding for the Indigenous art code. And the latest State of the Environment report has called on governments to help individuals, businesses and NGOs that want to buy land for conservation do so with such investments, which already account for 6% of all protected areas in Australia and form a network of privately owned reserves, which is the largest in the world, growing since 2016. Under the practice, those buying in include wealthy individuals and companies who tend to fund direct conservation, which has limited financial returns, and private sector investors who generally fund projects such as carbon offset schemes that may prove profitable. Major players in this space include former IT entrepreneur Norman Pater and his wife Gitta Sonnenberg, who are pouring $40 million into efforts to reforest 1 million hectares of cleared land, and companies such as Telstra, which last month invested in a government trust that pays owners of natural or undeveloped land to protect it. Last week, at last co-founder Mike Cannon-Brooks and his wife Annie had bought Dunk Island on the Great Barrier Reef for $23.65 million, reportedly intending to preserve its natural environment. But the report said government could do more to enable private conservation efforts. Legal experts have complained of environmental mining and water regulation stymieing investments, for example, in the face of accelerating vegetation and species extinctions. And BHP, the largest Australian mining company, has reported a slump in iron ore shipments in the past quarter as new waves of COVID-19 infections hit its workforce and add to labour shortages across its operations. The mining giant's output of the steel-making raw material from its operations in Western Australia's Pilbara region fell 2% to 71.7 million tonnes in the three months to June 30, compared to the same time last year, missing most analysts' forecasts for 76 million tonnes. Despite shipping a record-breaking amount of iron ore across the full year, BHP Chief Executive Mike Henry on Tuesday warned of significant looming challenges for the company, 
Iron ore, the raw material used in steel-making furnaces to churn out liquid metal, is Australia's most valuable export, bringing in $133 billion in the nation's overall export earnings in the past financial year. However, BHP and rival iron ore miners Rio Tinto and the Andrew Tugi Forest-led Fortescue Metals Group are facing the threat of falling prices. Benchmark prices, which averaged between US $110 and US $140 a tonne during the past financial year, have fallen to as low as US $100 a tonne this week, as COVID-19 restrictions softened steel demand in China, the world's largest iron ore consumer. BHP on Tuesday told investors it was targeting between 278 million tonnes and 290 million tonnes of iron ore in the coming financial year. The forecast was lower than many analysts had been expecting. An ANZ bank confirmed it will raise $3.5 billion in fresh capital to finance its $4.9 billion purchase of Suncor Bank to boost its Queensland presence. In the most significant bank buyout since deals during the financial crisis, ANZ pledged to keep Suncor branches open in Queensland, maintain staff numbers for at least three years and commit $25 billion of lending to the state's energy transition and fund infrastructure projects for the 2032 Brisbane Olympics. The sweeteners failed to impress the finance sector union, which warned that thousands of jobs could be lost when the three-year period expires, while other regional banks lamented the deal could entrench banking power in Sydney and Melbourne. But ANZ said it was necessary to provide more firepower to get bigger in Queensland, and ANZ Chief Executive Shane Elliott said scale would help ANZ compete more aggressively with the Commonwealth Bank. Mr Elliott said ANZ would make a case to regulators that the deal would improve competition, and not just in Queensland, in a dramatically changed landscape where banks face more pressures from non-banks. At $4.9 billion, the deal would be the biggest Australian bank M&A transaction since West Bank Banking Corp bought St George for $18.5 billion in 2008. The deal would see ANZ add Suncor's $60 billion in loan to its balance sheet, mostly housing loans to residents in Queensland and New South Wales. It would also lose Suncor as a pure play insurance company for the first time in its 220-year history. Suncor opened its first bank branch as Queensland Agricultural Bank in 1902 and is thrown into a $13.7 billion top 50 listed company. Under the deal, ANZ will continue operating under the Suncor Bank brand for five years as it takes on an additional $47 billion in home loans and $45 billion in deposits. The acquisition will need to be approved by the Australian Competition Consumer Commission and the Federal Treasurer Jim Chalmers. Suncor was previously Queensland State Government Insurance Office, which traces its origins to 1916. It merged with Metway Bank in 1996, with the state government relinquishing its shares in the new entity in coming years. And grocer giant Woolworths Group has snapped up retail digital media company Shopper Media Group for $150 million cash. Woolworths retail media business Cartology will buy all the equity in the digital out-of-home media company that offers targeted shopper advertising through a national screen network of more than 2,000 screens in more than 400 shopping centres. Cartology helps Woolworths supply base engage better with customers along the path to purchase by providing detailed customer data and insights into ad campaign effectiveness. Cartology is the exclusive retail media partner for brands to connect with Woolworths 13 million everyday reward members. And unions have criticised Qantas for offering company executives millions in bonuses following cancellations and baggage losses. In May, the airline's departures and arrivals were on schedule just 60% of the time, while more than 7% of flights were cancelled. But the company's executives have now been promised large bonuses, the airline workers' union says. Transport Workers' Union National Secretary Michael Kane said the money rubs salt into the deep wounds inflicted on illegally sacked workers. In an announcement to the ASX last month, the company said four executives would receive shares worth more than $4 million. The bonuses are to be paid out in August 2023 under the conditions of the retention and recovery plan. Executive bonuses were paused to pass the two financial year as the airline battled to stay afloat. 
receiving $2 billion of taxpayer support through the pandemic. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Brandon Buck, the president of CCT, the makers of Easy Lid, the first jar lid innovation in over 75 years. The lid allows consumers to vent a jar by simply press a button on the lid, which opens a tiny slit that breaks the steel. Believe it or not, there are about a third of consumers who struggle to open jar lids. While a stubborn vacuum-sealed jar lid might be a minor inconvenience to some, it can be a major struggle for others with disabilities or physical limitations. The future of packaging is dependent on an inclusive adaptation, and CCT is leading the charge. And I'll be talking to economist Saul Leslake. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.